Hello, everybody. Welcome to Volt for July 4th, 2022, Independence Day. Volt's podcast, Jay Duffy on the Supreme Court's EPA decision. I'm your host, David Roberts. On June 30th, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling in the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. There was a great deal of dread in the climate community in advance of the ruling and a great deal of hyperbolic coverage in its wake. But what did it actually say? Volt's listeners will already be familiar with the case, thanks to a pod I did on it a few months ago with Jack Linke and Curdy Datla, and they will recall that it was somewhat bizarre for the court to take this case at all, since it regards a set of regulations that never were and never will be put into effect. Rather, the court seemed eager to pass judgment on the legal justification that it anticipates EPA might use when regulating greenhouse gases under Biden. It was, in other words, an advisory opinion, which the Supreme Court is not supposed to do. Nonetheless, it took the case, and now it has ruled. The headline is that the majority opinion is not as bad as many anticipated, especially in the wake of the unhinged Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, this was a Chief Justice Roberts special, carefully parsed and hedged. To get clear on what the ruling does and doesn't actually say, I contacted one of the lawyers on the case, Jay Duffy of the Clean Air Task Force. Duffy was responsible for several of the key briefs and arguments in the case, so I thought he would have a good read, not only on what the Roberts decision says, but what it portends for subsequent cases. So, uh, without further ado, Jay Duffy, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me to come on. Let's start just really briefly. Tell us about your involvement in the case. Sure. Um, so I um, represent a number of environmental and public health groups, American Lung Association, American Public Health Association, Appalachian Mountain Club, Cleaner Council, Clean Wisconsin, Conservative Law, Conservative, no, uh, <laughs> Conservation Law Foundation, <laughs> and Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. We challenged the ACE rule and the CPP repeal when it came out in the D.C. Circuit. I argued a portion of that oral argument on a on a nine hour Zoom call. Oh my god! So I, yeah, I hope I hope this this pod is, won't be as painful as uh, as that was. So and then and then once we won we won below and then that was of course appealed by state attorney general and coal interests and I continued to represent the the same clients before the Supreme Court. So at a headline level, you know everybody saw the Dobbs <laughs> ruling, which was an Alito, a Sam Alito special, i.e. completely unbound and unrestrained and deranged, and I think were subsequently filled with fear about this ruling. Uh, but this is a Roberts decision, not an Alito decision, and it seems to bear the sort of typical characteristics of a Roberts decision in that it is sort of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, kind of trying to cut it down the middle, not quite dramatic, slightly more technical, slightly more narrow. So am I right in thinking that in the spectrum of outcomes that climate people anticipated or imagined, this is toward the 
better side, right? I mean, this is one of the better outcomes we could have envisioned. Is that roughly right? That's roughly right. I mean, I think there are, there are two kind of lanes in this decision. There is, you know, what is the path forward for regulating greenhouse gases from power plants? And I think there is still a lane there. And we were concerned that, you know, we would have a roadblock. On the major questions doctrine expansion, um, that piece is more troubling. And I think we could probably get into that. But, you know, I do think even though the Roberts opinion kind of throws shade on on multiple pathways forward at the end, he says, you know, this, this is just a narrow opinion. All we're saying is that the clean power plan and the system underlying the clean power plan um, is outside of EPA's authority. Right. So he did not, you know, they didn't nuke, you know, mass versus EPA. They didn't take away EPA's ability to address CO2. They didn't try to mess with the endangerment finding whereby EPA found that CO2 is a danger. There's a lot of bigger things they could have done that they didn't do. And we'll get into later sort of where we think they're going from here. So, so let's talk about then what Roberts did say. And when I first was reading about this, I thought that Roberts was focusing on the sort of inside the fence line versus outside the fence line question, which, you know, for listeners who are, don't have the background on this, the question is, if you're regulating coal plants, do you have to confine your regulations to the coal plant itself? Or in some sense, can you regulate the fleet? Or can you do what uh, the clean power plant did, which is regulate the entire electricity fleet, not just coal plants? But that's not quite right. He didn't, he specifically didn't speak on the inside versus outside the fence line question. It sounds like all he did is just say, whatever regulations you pass on coal plants, they cannot require utilities to shift generation to non-coal plants, i.e. generation shifting. Is that all he said? Is that it? Uh, well, and he, he also didn't say that, you know, the, the interesting thing about this Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, which is what we're under right now, is EPA doesn't actually require any sort of pollution control. What it does is come up with, okay, what's the best system of pollution control out there, comes up with a standard, and then it's up to the states to then set standards for their individual power plants that they comply with in any way they see fit. So um, in this ruling, it does seem like even complying with generation shifting is still on the table. You know, you could have a rule based on co-firing or CCS or, or some other, you know, quote unquote, inside the fence line measure you know, it it seems like the pathway forward could still be an individual plant deciding to shift generation. Right. So I think, as I understand it, what he said was when EPA is contemplating output standards for coal plants, it cannot take generation shifting into account when setting the standard. Right. That's, That's exactly right. Right. It has to set the standard based on inside the fence line options like co-firing, like CCS, things like that. But in complying with that standard, the state can still use generation shifting. That's, that's right. I think so. I mean, there is a lot of ambiguity in this opinion. I think (laughs) we'll be parsing through it for a while. I mean, as I said, at the end, Roberts kind of says, Hey, even, even though I just said a lot of stuff uh, negative about cap and trade, and I've said, 
you know, some some other things about fuel switching, etc. I'm not ruling on that. This opinion doesn't rule on that. All this opinion is saying, the clean power plan, don't do that again. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think we're going to have to read the tea leaves and find out which um, pollution controls have been cast more <laughs> doubt upon in order to think about, you know, what what the future of, of these regulations will look like. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a mixed bag. And, you know, what is still on the table is a little unclear. I think, you know, the inside the fence approaches are definitely still on the table. You know, whether or not market mechanisms like trading or other things like that are still on the table. I'm not as clear as as part of, you know, basing the standard on those, you know, say, could you do a CCS based standard that's, you know, carbon capture and sequestration based standard in conjunction with trading and, and set the BSCR and the standard on that? That's that's unclear in this opinion to me. Right. But if you could do it, it would have to be trading among coal plants, right? It would have to be trading among the regulated plants. Yes, I think that's... Yeah. It seems like he's trying to sort of cut non-coal plants out of the... <laughs> sort of out of the picture entirely. I think that's exactly right. I, I think that that cannot be the basis of the standard. Shutting down the plant can't be the basis of the standard. We, we certainly know those are off the table. And, you know, frankly, we, we've known that uh, since they stayed the rule in, in 2016. <laughs> yeah. So I guess if we're just confining ourselves to this ruling and not trying to sort of contemplate what might come next or what else they might do, it seems to me that the the sort of sole implication of this ruling is that standards for coal plant emissions are going to have to be less stringent than they otherwise could have been. That seems because, you know, before you're taking, you're setting the standard based on this broad set of possibilities. And now he sort of narrowed the set of possibilities. And so a standard based on that narrowed set of possibilities is probably going to be less stringent. Is that fair? Um, I, you know, I think we could reach the same sorts of stringencies as the clean power plan. I mean, you know, you and Jack and Kirti talked about this a lot too, is that the, the clean power plan was met 11 years in advance. So uh, <laughs> query whether that was all that stringent. <laughs> you know, the pathways forward of co-firing with natural gas or a carbon capture and sequestration based standard, those uh, techniques can, uh, especially, you know, CCS, uh, lead to near zero emissions. So I think there's still pollution control technologies out there that can do it, but you know that's yet to be seen. <laughs> and so to use those as the basis for your standards, say if the EPA says we're going to set output standards for coal plants based on CCS, EPA has to demonstrate that CCS is what available. Yep. And does it have to show anything about the cost? Like what does it have to demonstrate to allow it to use CCS as the standard? Sure. So all those factors are, are you know, listed in, in the statute. Um, and, you know, are, is it adequately demonstrated? Is it cost reasonable? Right. Um, does it reduce emissions? Is it the best? Um, does it take into consideration energy considerations such as, you know, reliability? So those are kind of the kind of things that they need to think about. In 2015, when uh, the Obama administration, you know, promulgated the Clean Power Plan in it, they said, you know, we've looked at CCS, we've looked at co-firing, and they meet all the criteria of Section 111, but they're more costly than generation shifting. And we think even if we set a standard based on CCS or co-firing, that the bulk of the compliance would come from generation shifting. So we're just going to go with that. Huh. So to me, with that taken off, with, with generation shifting taken off the table, the record is already there for a kind of CCS co-firing based standard. 
And, you know, right now, if anyone wants to build a new coal plant, that is the standard. Right now, it's based on partial CCS. Right, for new plants. That's right. Am I wrong in in thinking that the sort of net effect of this might be the coal industry just punching itself in the face? Because a, a standard that requires them to use CCS is going to be, it seems to me, way more destructive of the coal fleet than the alternatives. I would say it will be more costly. I mean, than, than generation shifting was, but still within the parameters of cost reasonableness under the Clean Air Act. You know, it's a forward-looking kind of technology-forcing uh, statute, and you know, we have things like like sulfur scrubbers uh, in the '70s, which EPA promulgated rules in order to deal with acid rain. When the standard was imposed, there were only three in operation, these sulfur scrubbers, and there's only one vendor. Mm. By the end of the 70s, there were 16 vendors, and the cost of those scrubbers had been cut in half in 20 years. So, you know, I I think the forward-looking nature of the Clean Air Act provides a a good pathway to cost declines. You know, that's not to say that, you know, obviously EPA has already found that CCS is cost reasonable when it did so in 2014 and 2015. Well, and surely in the subsequent seven years, it has come down in cost. The costs have come down and also the uh, climate crisis has gotten worse. Um, (laughs) So the, the, the necessity to reduce these emissions is even higher. Let's get back to what EPA should do next um, here in a little bit. First, I want to talk about the ruling a little bit more. So let's talk about then major questions Mm. (laughs) doctrine. The doctrine, as I understand it, is just if Congress intends agencies to do major things, it will specify so in law and statute. And we don't want agencies sort of interpreting vague statutes such that they are given major powers, <laughs> right? I mean, that's sort of the idea. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea in this case is the ability to regulate CO2 in the U.S. economy is a major thing. So it is impermissible for EPA to sort of wring that out of the Clean Air Act because the Clean Air Act does not specifically say that. Is that more or less Robert's reasoning here? Well, would you mind if I read you something before before I hop into <laughs> to his reasoning? Please, please, please. Okay. The court's alarm over global warming may or may not be justified, but it ought not distort the outcome of this litigation. This is a straightforward administrative law case in which Congress has passed a malleable statute giving broad discretion, not to us, but to the executive agency. No matter how important the underlying policy issue at stake, this court has no business substituting its own desired outcome for the reasoned judgment of the responsible agency. Who wrote that? <laughs> Was that Scalia in Chevron? That's Scalia in Massachusetts versus EPA, along with his friends, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, ah. and Justice Alito. <laughs> Hilarious. I've been reading it over and over again. This is Chevron, (laughs) right? This is what's known as Chevron, which is the idea which has been practiced, as far as I know, for quite a while in the court, which is just giving agencies sort of broad ability to interpret statutes as they see fit and more or less trying to keep judges out of it. This This has been standard practice for a long time, right? That's right. I mean, this is how Congress works, right? You're, there's not a bunch of scientists and <laughs> engineers and et cetera over at, in Congress, you know, trying to figure out what the best pollution controls are and, you know, how a power plant works. 
Um, so what Congress does is they they want these laws to last for a long time. They want them to be able to uh, adapt to new problems and new solutions. And so they write these kind of broadly worded statutes like find the best system of emission reduction. And the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act are sort of legendarily designed to be flexible, designed to incorporate new information and change and grow over time. That's partially why conservatives hate them so much. Right. That's exactly right. And so, I mean, the, and then there, there are plenty of guardrails here. You know, there are a lot of factors that Congress can find EPA with in order to find this best system of emission reduction. But, you know, up until this point, the major questions doctrine to me and, and to the dissent and what we argued in uh, our briefing was Congress delegated this authority to this agency and, you know, it's okay that it's broad words, but is the agency kind of, is it acting within its lane, you know, its expertise? And is there anything in the statute or in any other law that kind of really conflicts, you know, is, is a mismatch between um, what they're trying to do and, and, you know, something else is pushing back on it. The interesting shift that happened here is the major questions doctrine used to be defined under this uh, utility air case as Congress should speak clearly if it wishes to assign an agency decision of vast economic and political significance. And now there is a subtle shift here that does a lot of work in the West Virginia case. And it says, you know, to overcome, you know, the skepticism of, of, you know, this is a major rule. The government has to point to clear congressional authorization to regulate in this manner. So it went from, do you have the right to make the decision? Is this your decision to make? To what decision did you make? What was, what is the how? Right. Um, how you made the decision? That actual rule needs to be kind of pre-authorized, and that to me, that subtle shift does does a lot of work. Yeah, and it just seems completely counter to the spirit of the Clean Air Act, <laughs> because the whole point of the Clean Air Act is lawmakers in the '60s and '70s saying we don't know everything that's in the air that hurts people. So we're just going to say whatever that turns out to be, EPA should regulate it, right? Like whatever science discovers is in the air hurting us, EPA should regulate it. So sort of by definition, it can't specify in that law how EPA should regulate new threats. It doesn't know what the new threats are. That's the whole point. Right. And, and this, you know, this section and a lot of these sections apply to a variety of different sources, a variety of different pollutants. So, you know, if, if you regulate, you know, X pollutant from a cement plant, can we not figure out what the best system of emission reduction is? We have to go, you know, knock on Congress's door and say, you know, is this too big? Is this, is this a good, <laughs> good, uh, is this a good approach here? And that's not how this is designed. It would, would really gum up the works. Yes, it would gum up the works. And I just, you know, I, this is, I'm sort of obsessive about this, but it just seems like major questions doctrine, as it's being interpreted, is on its face counter to the literal spirit of a bunch of laws that Congress passed. Right. It seems like in and of itself, it's thwarting Congress's intent, you know, under the guise of doing the opposite. Right. That's right. I, I think Nathan Richardson wrote an article recently called Anti-Deference. Right. You know, this is, it's not even just <laughs> Chevron. It, it's, it's now you've got a thumb on the scale against doing something important. And it's anti-regulatory in nature, as, as you spoke about with, uh, with Kirti and Jack. There isn't an issue brought up or there aren't any court rulings out there that say, oh, you know, you're not doing something important. So right. that's a major question, you know, and you can see that throughout the, the looking at the 
you know, the factual background as they laid it out was a lot of focus on the costs to the industry without any description of the benefits to society. Yes, this is a sort of theme lately. They wrote a gun ruling that had virtually nothing in it about the victims of gun violence. They wrote an abortion ruling that had virtually nothing in it about the impact on women. And now they've written (laughs) a pollution ruling that says almost nothing about the the effects of pollution. Yeah, the humans who breathe. On humans. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's striking. And so why... That quote you read was the pretty standard Chevron reading of of agency discretion. Why do you think Roberts has shifted? Is it just as simple as because he can and has a giant majority now? I mean, we can kind of see this thread from Roberts over the course of the past decade or so. He, he in a dissent to this case called City of Arlington, said that that you know uh, deferring to agencies broad interpretation of of laws isn't quite the very definition of tyranny but the danger <laughs> posed by <laughs> don't worry it's not the very definition but the tyranny danger adjacent. By, <laughs> yeah, exactly but the danger posed by the growing power of the administrative state cannot be dismissed i mean yes it can i can dismiss <laughs> it watch me i just did <laughs> oh so at the time that in, in that dissent, Justice Scalia actually responded to that dissent and said, you know, you can characterize anything as, you know, a major question. You can characterize anything as over over jurisdiction. Indeed. Based on vibes. Exactly. Vibes only. <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a nod to our friends at the other pod. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, he explained that everything could be characterized as a question about agency and authority. And, and that sort of rule would be an inappropriate transfer of interpretive power from the agencies to the court. And, you know, I, I, I think that's kind of the path we've been on. The interesting kind of detour that Roberts took was in the, the Affordable Care Act case. He essentially said there, this is a major question. You know, the Treasury shouldn't be making health care decisions. <sighs> but I'm not going to say that the rule is illegal. I just am going to say that it's the court's decision to make. And there he upheld the quote unquote major rule. Mm. So we've kind of seen a shift just since, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And I actually, you know, I was hopeful for a more a narrower approach to the major questions doctrine than, than what we saw here knowing that that the Roberts opinion in, in King versus Burwell did actually end up upholding the major rule. It just didn't grant deference to the agency. And now he's thwarting the agency directly. So so let's talk about then, I mean, maybe there's no answer to this, but what in the hell is a major question? <laughs> what are the characteristics, what are the sort of metrics or standards by which an agency contemplating a rule sitting around, I'm just picturing them sitting around a conference table, contemplating a rule, thinking, well, but is this major? How do they know what what standards or metrics have been offered by Roberts for other people to judge whether something is major or is it literally just feels major to John Roberts? Well, I, he literally said in, in the opinion, does it raise an eyebrow? <laughs> does, it, does it raise an eyebrow? Whose eyebrow, John? Whose yeah. eyebrow? 
And how high does your eyebrow have to go? Yeah, I know. Raise it a millimeter, two millimeters. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that is kind of the, that, that, that's the most striking. There are some parameters or factors, although even in Gorsuch's concurrence, he said, this is not an exhaustive list. Come with us, come to us with further suggestions as to what might make something major. Oh, God. But, you know, it's, is, it, is it old? Which strikes me, seeing as the Constitution is 235 years old, um, <laughs> has it not been used a lot? There's this kind of use it or lose it idea. Is it an ancillary provision? Um, I saw someone on Twitter earlier today say, I, "I love all of my Clean Air Act provisions equally. There are no ancillary provisions. They, <laughs> none, none they were of them all are ancillary. <laughs> they were all written by Congress. <laughs> um, a sort of anti-novelty principle." You know, it, it, which which I think Jack made a great point on, on your last pod about you know. So once once a law is enacted, if the agency doesn't go and do something big at the outset, they kind of get locked into what it is. Even though you know here we're dealing with a, a portion of the statute that deals with an entirely different pollutant and a different source category, so of course the solution is different. Not to not to pound the table on this, but. The whole friggin' point of the Clean Air Act is to say, we don't know all the pollutants yet. There might be new pollutants. Let's do scientific reviews every few years and see if there are new pollutants. So by definition, if you find a new pollutant, that's novel. It, it's going to be the first time. Like, this, these are all catch-22s. That's right. And I, I also think that the, the interesting thing here is that, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that Scalia quote that you can you can um, you can characterize anything as major. And, you know, I mean, I would characterize the clean power plan as the most cost effective, efficient means of reducing emissions from the power sector based on decades of them doing exactly that. And then they continue to do it such that they reduce their emissions beyond the targets of the clean power plan. But, you know, if you read the opinion, that is not what you come away with. You come away with this idea that there was a, a EPA takeover of the entire electric grid. Um, and so that that's what's troubling to me is that you can use these kind of squishy factors um, and characterize things however you see fit to kind of fit the factors almost. Well, this is, I mean, this is one of the great ironies. And this is one of the things that makes me laugh about this whole judgment is the particular <laughs> provisions being characterized as major here in this judgment, the targets were met without the regulations ever passing, meaning almost by definition, if they had passed, the targets would have been met at zero cost since they were going to be met anyway. So like if a regulation that would have had almost literally no effect on anyone at all, if that counts as major, Yep. What wouldn't count as major? Right. Like, like literally, we know how major this would have been. We can now see in historical retrospect how major it would have been. It would have been tiny. Right. It would have been completely marginal. It would have done almost nothing. Well, I mean, because there is some interesting back and forth with Justice Alito at the oral argument where he was arguing that it's not about what's happening in this actual rule. It's about what could it, if, if you, you know, what is the most you could do with this new interpretation? That's the stick by which we should be oh, looking at, which is, yeah. I mean, and I don't know how much that played into the thinking here, but you're right. I mean, there was no rule at issue and, and, I mean, Justice Roberts essentially admitted that this was an advisory opinion up front. 
So, you know, the standing here was based on this idea of voluntary secession exemption to mootness, which essentially says you, EPA, have told us that you're not going to bring the CPP back into effect. But you could, couldn't you? <laughs> and then they kind of looked at they could kind of looked at the record and said, no, you couldn't really. The state plans were due to the agency in 2018. The targets have already been met. And so then they move on and, and fairly explicitly say that EPA needed to somehow demonstrate unequivocal abandonment of generation shifting, you know, henceforth. But how how could it demonstrate that? Yeah, right. What does it even mean? Right. Well, and it, it, it by definition, you know, the concept of generation shifting is not what was before the court. The Clean Power Plan was re- the Clean Power Plan repeal, not even the Clean Power Plan was what was before the court. Yeah, this is the most sort of tortured, obvious effort to insert itself in agency deliberations and just like scrabbling together the most thin justifications for it. It's really striking the deeper you get into it. So I wanted to ask briefly about concurrences. You know, as I said, this seems like a very Roberts-esque ruling as opposed to an Alito-esque ruling. So were the other conservatives on the court, did they have, as they are wont to do, uh, crazier things to say in their <laughs> concurrences? As someone who will be, uh, you know, litigating before this court again in the future, I'm sure I will. I, I will not uh, opine on anyone's craziness. However, <laughs> um, so we we've all known for a while that Justice Gorsuch is a is a fan of the the non delegation doctrine, and he provided us with a reading list in his concurrence. Uh, interestingly, Thomas, who has signed on to these sort of concurrences on the non delegation doctrine, especially in the um, those shadow docket cases about vaccines and uh, eviction moratorium. Thomas didn't sign on to this one, so I, huh. I, I'm not quite sure yet what to what to make of that. Yeah, it's not like Thomas to show any restraint, right? So I mean, the, the essentially what what Justice Gorsuch, you know, he, he wanted to get into, you know, what what the major question doctrine does, and I, I think he sees it as a way to vindicate his concerns about non delegation without all the messiness of, you know, essentially striking down multiple laws. You know, he, he says that it's the major question doctrine is something that preserves Congress's power to legislate and for, you know, the lay people to have their say. But, you know, they did. You know, the, the, the Clean Air Act was written and it was supposed to be do important things, you know, and, and I think it discounts what Congress actually did. And, you know, there's a, a lot of public input that goes into these. Yeah, that's what I wanted to emphasize. They are trying to characterize agency actions as anti-democratic, as though there is this cabal of bureaucrats up there doing things with no care for the common man. But if you look at actual American governance, the EPA, in coming up with one of these rules, arguably takes in a lot more public input and is more responsive to public input than the friggin' legislature is. Like, this, argue, like these rulemakings are arguably one of the most democratic things America still does. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And they are required under the Administrative Procedure Act to provide public comment. They can't change the rule too much after they provide the public notice of the rule. They need to take into account and respond to the thousands of comments that come in. I mean, this is, as you said, kind of more democratic than, than what we get to do with legislation. So I think it under undermines that significantly. I mean, I'm cynical about this, but 
this idea of non-delegation is basically just Congress shouldn't hand off important things to agencies. It should do the important things itself. Again, what counts as important? Again, why? There's no, <laughs> there's no, you know, this is the thing about non-delegation and major questions doctrine is just like, where is this coming from? There's nothing in the Constitution. The word major does not appear. You know what I mean? Like all these principles are just made up by conservative jurists. Am I wrong about this? Is there textual or constitutional basis for these things? Or are these just like kind of how these guys feel? Like, ah, they shouldn't be doing major stuff. It just feels wrong. Like, is there, what is the basis for these doctrines? Yeah, and I think the idea is is that there's a separation of powers concern that, you know, the, the Congress is supposed to be making the major decisions and that the agencies are just supposed to be there to, to fill up the details pursuant to them making the, the major choices. But as, you know, we've talked about what constitutes major and, you know, there's plenty of scholarship out there talking about the legislature delegating authority to agencies since, you know, the founding. Yes, uh, the, the dissent had quite a bit on that, I think. That's right. Uh, there's also a really strange and gratuitous footnote about Woodrow Wilson in the concurrence. <laughs> um, it, it was one of the stranger things I've read in a case in a long time. Uh, Gorsuch essentially says that, you know, Woodrow Wilson was, you know, a racist and which I believe is true and, and you know, didn't like laymen and that his attitude was that we need more experts making policy. And so the, the like insinuation here is that you like need to pick Woodrow Wilson's side or like <laughs> scientists and engineers making technical determinations about complicated pollution controls. <laughs> pick a side. Are you with Woodrow? That's <laughs> a little bizarre um, guilt by association there. <laughs> Precisely. This racist liked scientists. Do you like scientists? Hmm, yep. Sounds racist. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So am I, I mean, this the cynical take on non-delegation is just Congress doesn't have the expertise or the time to get into nitty gritty detail about specific decisions that administrative agencies might make. So if you say that all major decisions have to be made by Congress, in effect, you're just radically reducing federal power, right? You're just going to get a lot less law and regulation out of Congress because Congress just doesn't have the capacity to do what it's being asked to do, right? I mean, that's that's Gorsuch's long-term goal, right? It's just to shrink the federal government and reduce federal power. And is that too cynical? I mean, I, Elena Kagan, you know, Justice Kagan says, says in her dissent that all signs here point to just an animosity toward the administrative state. So the system, the way it works right now is a conservative court can decide what is major and <laughs> kick it back to a Congress who isn't working right now um, yes, in, a exactly. in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. The very conservatives, the very conservatives saying, oh, this is the job for Congress are the same conservatives who have spent decades rendering Congress completely useless and frozen and unable to do anything. It's almost like they just don't want the government to work at all. I'll, I'll give them what one. So there is on our side of the briefs, we did understand and acknowledge that the clean power plan was novel. You know, we, we believed that the generation shifting um, mechanism was fully supportable and was demonstrated and cost effective and the best means of doing this. But 
you know, we did in our briefing, right, you know, we understand that creating a formal role for renewables to generate credits is novel and could be, you know, envisioned as as outside of EPA's authority. It is a bit of a stretch. It's a bit a bit of a stretch. And we, we admitted that in our briefing. And our hope was that that would create an off-ramp within the major questions doctrine even to say, you know, that the EPA has overstepped kind of in those same ways that they've overstepped before in the case law. You know, they're, they're looking at like treasury, looking at healthcare or something like that. EPA kind of bringing in unregulated sources formally into a program you know, maybe that was too far. Um, and our, our hope was that that would lead to the court being able to give a nod to major questions doctrine and sort of, are you staying in your lane the same sort of way as, as uh, Justice Kagan describes the major questions doctrine in her dissent. But um, unfortunately, they decided that they needed to go go further um, and kind of say, you know, is the rule that you came up with, is that pre-authorized by Congress? Not just, you know, is this within your lane? Right. But it is narrower than it could have been. So they're saying you can't take generation shifting into account. But but I thought that, I mean, I thought it was clever of you guys to argue this in sort of, in a sense, you gave them that as a sort of modified, limited ruling to sort of, um, you know, forestall them ruling in a much broader way. So the sort of generation shifting thing is kind of like a sacrificial lamb uh, that you that you offered up for them to kill, so they didn't kill the whole thing. Well, and not even the generation shifting amongst uh, sources. You know, uh, the hope was that you could then preserve even just shifting between covered sources. What we kind of expressed was novel was was including you know non clean air act sources right, in, right. in the program. So shifting amid regulated plants is still on the table. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know I, 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 we'll, find, we'll find out in future lawsuits. Right. I, I don't think anyone's chomping at the bit to test that one. Right. Um, but, you know, I, he did say, you know, the, the way the Clean Power Plan did it exceeded EPA's authority. And there's a lot of language in there that says, you know, that, that just reducing generation at a source is not a system of emission reduction. So I would doubt that that is within anything anyone wants to pursue. And, and may just be precluded by the by the decision. Well, I want to talk about what avenues EPA should pursue. But first, let's just talk briefly about, um, you know, my sense is that what Roberts would have preferred to do on Dobbs and on abortion is shave away at it incrementally, you know, bit by bit. Because that's, you know, this is sort of, he kind of scolds the majority in that case for, the jolt. This is too big of a jolt, and we're not supposed to jolt people. I want to erode <laughs> abortion rights <laughs> bit by bit by bit, like I'm eroding, you know, uh, uh, voting rights and and money and politics. You know, so we're easing our way into this new reactionary future. That's it seems to me like what he wanted to do on abortion, and was upset that Alito didn't go along with it. It seems like that is what he's doing on the administrative state question. So I'm I'm curious about two things. One, I'm curious since he doesn't really control the majority anymore, right? Like if if Alito and uh, and Gorsuch and and Coney Barrett want to get together and go big, he can't really stop them anymore. So I'm curious about two things. One, why you think they signed on to the kind of slower, more incremental strategy this time? 
And then secondly, like what you think is next, because this is surely not the last word this court is going to have on the administrative state. Right. I mean, I think on the power plant side and the paths forward there, I think that was incremental. You know, it's pretty narrow. It takes off just the clean power plant approach. But I do think that the chief is actually more aligned with the conservative, less incremental side on the administrative state. As, mm. I, as I said, it's it's tyranny adjacent. Um, <laughs> so I actually, I, I think this opinion is actually, is an opinion that the rest of the conservatives wanted to sign on to. It, it, you know, kind of creates this, don't get in, you know, you don't need to get into Chevron or any sort of deference. And it's actually an anti-deference canon. They never mentioned Chevron. It's, it's quite striking. No. And the interesting thing too, is that like, the Trump administration, when they repealed the clean power plan, they came in with this Chevron one, plain language, every system that you utilize to control pollution from these plants needs to be to or at an individual source. It was a 65 page federal register notice. And you know half a page talks about the major questions doctrine. They, they say, our plain reading of the Clean Air Act is that you can't you can't use generation shifting and and everything needs to get bolt on control and we think you know the major questions doctrine confirms that um they don't even get into it all that much hmm so that's in a sense roberts did not confirm that interpretation right the Correct. the idea that the only permissible regulation here is something that you bolt onto a coal plant which was sort of the Trump EPA's take. Yep. He didn't affirm that and sort of by implication said that's wrong, right? I mean, it, it, in some sense, this is a ruling against that interpretation as well. I think that's right. And I actually think that would have been a more dangerous decision for regulating power plants um, and for a path forward for power plants. So they kind of were, were um, narrower on this, you know, what does 111 say? And, and you know, is it as confined and extreme as the Trump EPA had proposed. They were, were a little more uh, narrow there, but then used the major questions doctrine much more than the Trump administration did in order to do the work of knocking down the clean power plant. Mm-hmm. So so what's next then? Are there other particularly significant cases regarding the administrative state that are on the docket? Or do we know sort of what the next step, I mean, I'm, I'm just assuming that Roberts is going to be trying to sort of destroy the administrative state in pieces. <laughs> is there any sense of what's coming next? Well, I, um, I work on uh, transportation litigation as well. And we're currently in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, litigating a challenge over light duty vehicle standards. And um, we've, we have the, the statement of issues in from the uh, Red State Attorneys General. And and there they're saying, you know, any reliance on transitioning to zero emitting vehicles. Ah, of course. Raises the specter of, of uh, the major questions doctrine. Same basic thing, right? Same, same idea. You can't um, make standards based on the idea that fleets could switch to electric, right? Right. That's right. And, and the same sort of thing, too, where, where, you know, a lot of the automakers, you know, they're fine with the standards that EPA is coming out with. And as we saw in West Virginia, you know, it was the coal interests and the red states. It wasn't the power industry. The power industry was actually, you know, arguing for um, this sort of interpretation because they know that this is the way that, that the industry has worked for years. And I bet they would like to just know 
what the, what the hell they're supposed to do <laughs> at this point. I know. I mean, that that's the, the real troubling thing going forward is, you know, now everyone's guessing as to what's major. Yes. I know this whole idea that conservatives care about regulatory certainty is such a friggin' joke. This is like they've they've just inserted very fundamental uncertainty into every agency decision now. Right. And without, you know, even thinking about the power plants, you know, I've, I've been on the briefs here. I've argued portions of the case. And even I can't quite tell you what is on and off the table. Um, and I've read the opinion, you know, 10 times already. So, it's, <laughs> so I don't know how exactly we figure out on a variety of rules. There's always going to kind of be this looming big brother of major questions. Well, this is, and and this again is a cynical take on it, but I feel like cynicism is justified these days. (laughs) It's almost, if he had been more specific and clearer, it just seems like Roberts left quite a bit of vagueness in there on purpose, because what the effect of vagueness is that the agencies will start being cautious on their own, right? They're going to start sort of patrolling themselves, policing themselves, being cautious themselves rather than take chances. So in a sense, it's almost leaving the vagueness out there seems deliberate. It seems like a deliberate play to sort of just signal to agencies, hey, rein yourselves in across the board. Right. I mean, I don't know, can't speak to the intentions, of course, but I know that it is going to raise that for all the agencies trying to figure out what the, what the lines are. It also, you know, leaves very little guidance and, and a lot of breadth to lower courts who deal with, you know, the majority of these these sorts of decisions. Most agency decisions, you know, go to the D.C. Circuit. And now they kind of have to parse through, you know, what exactly is major here. Knowing that at any time the, the Supreme Court could just <laughs> take something away from them, reverse them. Like the way the Supreme Court is treating these lower court rulings is just must be discouraging to be a judge at that level, I would say. Mm-hmm. Let's conclude then by talking about what EPA should do. So it cannot do what the clean power plan did, which is make output-based standards for existing power plants based on a wide array of compliance strategies, including generation shifting. It can't do that. But Roberts didn't specifically (laughs) preclude uh, a lot of other routes forward. So, I mean, I know you're not in charge of EPA, you're not in the administration, but sort of your sense of what EPA is going to take from this and the likely route it's going to try to take forward now, addressing greenhouse gases from existing power plants. Right. I mean, I I go back to the um, the 2014 and the 2015 rulemakings where, where, you know, EPA said that co-firing and CCS are available and meet all the criteria of Section 111. That to me, that seems like the natural path forward to stringent standards. So that that's what I anticipate. And that's just just to clarify, EPA is saying you have to bolt this thing onto your power plant to bring it down to meet this output standard. You cannot get more straightforwardly legal <laughs> than that, right? I mean, there's no fuzziness about whether EPA is allowed to do that. Is there? Well, as I said before, EPA can't can't tell you to do that, but they can base standards on it. And then you can right, apply right. How, however you see fit. But yes, I mean, that that is a, 
it's a CCS is a carbon scrubber, you know, just like other scrubbers that are <laughs> that are bolted onto plants. You know, co-firing with CCS is is at the source, just like other things that have been used for for decades. I am certain that you know, even in the um, there's currently a case over the, that 2014 new source performance standards for coal plants that's based on on CCS that has been stayed for years and years now because the Trump administration said it was going to repeal it and then it ended up not repealing it. And now this EPA is reviewing it. So there are challenges there essentially saying, you know, CCS is not adequately demonstrated and it's too costly. Um, So I'm sure we'll have those arguments, but those are more the sort of like record based, you know, let's go through a bunch of, of engineering diagrams and modeling and cost metrics, which is not usually and I say that with a long pause, the, the thing <laughs> that the Supreme Court spends their time on. So you think probably that question will be resolved by the D.C. Circuit Court and the Supreme Court will not mess with it? Is that your guess? That is my guess based on, you know, historically the types of cases that the Supreme Court takes up is that they don't they, they don't waste their time kind of like parsing through an administrative record, right. um, you know, on, on sort of, you know, engineering details yeah i'm just trying to exercise my tragic imagination more these days <laughs> and imagine what they you know what they could do if they woke up grumpy uh uh one day so am i right in saying the reason the epa didn't do that in the first place was because it wanted to make a system that was more flexible and adaptable and lower cost so am i right in saying that by eliminating these novel possibilities of treating the whole electric fleet as one system and requiring you to more or less make your standards based on what you can bolt on the coal plant, you're going to end up with a system that is tougher on coal plants. Are you not? I mean, this really seems like the coal industry shooting itself in the foot. Like you're going to end up with standards that are more difficult to meet and are probably going to lead to more coal plants closing. Is that is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I, I I think there's a path forward to do it. I think there's a bunch of compliance alternatives. Uh, and, and as I said before, with the sulfur scrubbers, I think once a, a regulation is put into place, it is remarkable how quickly industry can innovate and, you know, learn and decline costs and things of that nature. So, you know, it could be something that spurs some real action based on, you know, the technology forcing nature of the Clean Air Act and, and you know, what it requires, which is putting on the best system. And, and those are the best systems right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we're all, I guess, just speculating at this point, but I, so many of these coal plants are just kind of lumbering half dead giants anyway. I just have, because as you say, Compliance-wise, utilities can comply by shifting generation if they don't want to plow a bunch of money into a half-dead coal plant. So I just sort of anticipate, you know, if the choice comes down, bolt CCS onto this already not particularly competitive coal plant or just let it die, I'm guessing let it die is going to be the more common uh, route. But we'll see about that. So what's the schedule then? Now EPA is in the midst, presumably, of analyzing this because they weren't going to use the CPP anyway. So I I guess I'm just, you know, by way of wrapping up, I'm sort of curious, like where EPA is on this. Are they starting over now with a new 
rulemaking or are they, do you think they've got a lot of work done? Sort of like, when do you think we can anticipate a new rule out of, out of EPA? So EPA has said um, in its, they do a unified regulatory agenda in the spring, and they said that there will be proposals on new and existing power plants for, you know, their carbon emissions in March, 2023. So, and I do, you know, they have been working, they have been thinking, you know, we, we at, at Clean Air Task Force, you know, we go in and, and have meetings with EPA and, and, you know, provide them with with our analysis. And we have, a, you know, a whole bunch of engineers and scientists and policy folks who um, do modeling and, and all sorts of analysis that we go in and, and provide to, to EPA to help them form their rules. And we've, we've done that. And, and so we know that they've been taking meetings with us and, and others to work on on this new set of rules. And my God, the uh, the record for for what you can do on on these fleets. Um, you know, we've been giving them materials since I don't know 2012. You know, we've written yes. written the same sort of comments over and over again for uh, a decade now. So they certainly have a lot of information to build on, and you know, we're urging them to move as swiftly as possible. Yeah, just uh, trying to imagine what happens if these rules slip in under the deadline, and then. Trump administration comes in and then whoosh, the whole thing. Like if they pass rules on new power plants and existing power plants and there are lawsuits as there will be, and those lawsuits are resolved in the lower courts in EPA's favor, would that mean that a Trump EPA is stuck with these rules like legally or can they just throw them out all over again (laughs) and start this whole damn thing over again? Well, they certainly could. I mean, the the um, they would have to have a legal rationale for doing so, though. Yes, right? yeah, an agency can change its mind. It depends also on you know what the um, DC Circuit ruled. You know, if if they said that like heat rate improvements alone are insufficient, you know, then that's the law uh, of the land on on one eleven, and they wouldn't be able to do something like that, or you know, some, something something along those lines. There can be holdings that that will bind future administrations, but you know, if it's EPA just using their broad authority to come up with what that agency at that time thinks is the best system, um, then then in the future, you know, a, another administration could find that a, a different system is the is the best system. <sighs> it is a bit of a whirlwind, and it, it and it's you know, it, it is exhausting. We've been litigating what the meaning of, of system is here for you know most of my career has been the word system. <laughs> And what it means. <laughs> oh, it never ends. Uh, okay, well, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there with the with the modified, limited, hopeful <laughs> statement that <laughs> EPA, after this ruling, still has authority over greenhouse gases, still has authority over existing power plants, and still can and will pass regulations forcing existing power plants to reduce their emissions. So that's all happy and positive. That is, although the endangerment finding was challenged in the DC circuit last week. No! (laughs) (laughs) Surely SCOTUS is not going to take on reanalyzing the endangerment finding. Tell me, just tell me they're not going to do that. I know. I actually think that this, the West Virginia opinion, strengthens the endangerment finding. It makes clear that that EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants. So um, I, I think that is a, a very weak case. <laughs> okay. Well, on that on that 
extremely limited positive note, let's uh, let, let's wrap it up. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on at such uh, short notice and for clarifying all this for us. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thank you, David. Happy Fourth. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.